Peter Scott, you're the first Douglas Byrne Marconi Fellow, and you've been working in the newly acquired Marconi Archive in the Bodleian for some time now, and you've come to give the first lecture. Can you tell us what that experience was like of working on the archive? It's a very interesting archive. The archive is huge. It includes Marconi, GC, the companies which merged to form Associated Electrical Industries. It's very much the key archive for British civilian electronics. And it has uh, revelations for you? It had revelations for your research? Oh, very much, yes. It's allowed me to work out how the British radio industry developed during the key period of the 1920s and 1930s. So tell us a bit about the introduction in the 1920s, because radio for domestic broadcasting and domestic listening was a very novel idea, wasn't it? Yes, radio was developed before the First World War, and the First World War saw a big acceleration in technical development. But the initial thinking was radio was going to be used for long-distance communication, maritime communication and military uses. Then with the development of radio hams and a lot of cheap war surplus equipment and the breakthrough into sound communication rather than just Morse code effectively, people realised you could use radio for entertainment and by 1920 in Europe and North America radio stations were beginning to open up. So Marconi had a large number of the key radio patents and moved very quickly to acquire patents from British Thomson Houston and the main international patent holders. So effectively they formed a monopoly of the 13 key patents for producing a valve radio and then cashed in on that monopoly by licensing royalties to radio manufacturers in Britain who needed to have royalties in order to be able to legally produce radios. So you mentioned monopoly a couple of times. Were there, was there no serious competition for nobody else in the race here? Marconi had all of the key fundamental patents and the patents which were brought out afterwards needed to rest on a Marconi patent. They were refinements. So Marconi could block the development of any valve radio. And what Marconi did was very clever. It put all its patents together and then provided a license for all the patents. So radio manufacturers couldn't save money by buying one or two. They had to buy all 13. And they were charged a large amount. The royalty was charged at 12 shillings and sixpence per valve holder. They were actually charging on the number of valves, but they worked out a radio manufacturer might sell a radio without the valves. So they charged the royalty on the holder the valve went into. And this was a large amount. If you had five valves, you'd be paying over 60 shillings. And the working class average wage was probably in the region of 60, 65 shillings. So just a royalty on a five-valve radio would be equivalent to a week's wage for an ordinary working person. So you've said a little bit about business acumen. What about Marconi's vision? I mean, this thought that no one had imagined that this was what the wireless was about, that's to say, entertainment. Was, was, it his, was it Marconi's vision that it could expand into this unexpected field? I don't think so. I think really it came up almost as an emergent thing. Radio hams found that they could broadcast and receive signals. And this community of amateur enthusiast listeners appeared. People then 
figured that with all the people there, there was a basis of a market. I remember when, when I was a boy, my parents used to talk about listening in to the radio. They didn't listen to the radio, they listened in. And thinking about that now, it makes me think it's, there's something about eavesdropping. It's as though you're listening in to something that's not intended for you. Is that the origin of that interesting phrase? I think it was because people used earphones. With our original crystal radio, before valves became commonplace, the radio wasn't powerful enough to amplify the signal so you could hear it without earphones. So people would actually sit down. Sometimes you could have two or three pairs of earphones. But you were very much listening in, rather than having it broadcast out to you. In the museum, we have some objects that we think of as iconic in the history of this episode, the introduction of domestic radio and as entertainment. And one of them is the famous microphone that Dame Nellie Melba used for her live musical broadcast, in uh, singing broadcast in, in 1920 uh, from Chelmsford. Was that such a big moment, that stunt by Marconi, as we paint it? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the things which led up to the foundation of the BBC. Lord Reeves' dream that you could then broadcast the best of national and international culture throughout Britain. And people could listen to classical music concerts, the top singers, high culture, which would then be spread by the BBC. This was a very British vision. In America, you had local radio stations which were operating commercially. In Britain, you had a virtual monopoly with the development of continental stations broadcasting in English, particularly in the south of England. Before weekdays, this was the big thing, was the BBC providing what was a fairly highbrow service, but still very popular. By the late 1930s, more than 80% of households had radios, either licensed or unlicensed. The license figures actually underestimate by a significant amount how many radios were out there. Yes, the, the idea of licensing, I mean, that's a very interesting concept. Was that model taken from any other areas of life where you, where licenses were needed, well, gun licenses and so on, but the license for a radio is a, is a very interesting concept. And was it special to Britain? I think it was. The BBC was originally a commercial company set up by what were known as the big six electrical engineering firms, Marconi, GEC, and a number of other big electrical companies who wanted to sell radio. And you had to have a model to fund the investment. So they brought in a levy on new sets, but also a 10 shillings a year license. Half of the money went to the BBC, and interestingly, half of it was kept by the post office. So the government was getting its cut right at the beginning. And the idea was to establish what was effectively a monopoly, but then to regulate the monopoly. And this worked out quite well on the broadcasting side. What was more problematic was the monopoly in terms of set production, with Marconi controlling the royalties and raising prices considerably. Because this meant the radios were very expensive by international standards. So the monopoly looked like a commercial advantage, but then it led to a vulnerability because the government could take it over at one step, so to speak. Oh, absolutely, yes. And of course, in 1926-27, then the BBC becomes a public corporation. But the radio manufacturers are not too concerned because now they've established a market for their product. 
So we think of the license as a government tool, but actually it was created by this commercial corporation and then the government took it over. In negotiation with the post office, the post office was actually calling the shots. Because the post office had a monopoly on, on the, the, the wired telegraph, which preceded the wireless, so, so they had a legal right to control communications then, even and they inherited that from the, from the wired days into the wireless era, is that right? Absolutely, they controlled telegraphs, telephone licensing, they also controlled radio broadcasting. And they were initially reluctant to allow people to broadcast. They would give out experimental licenses, but it wasn't until the end of 1922 that a concerted publicity campaign to get radio introduced in Britain finally got the post office to give way and allow broadcasting. So we were a good two years behind what was going on in some European countries and in America. So from these beginnings, how did the industry develop in Britain? Was, was the Marconi model an advantage or, or, or was that a problematic in the longer run? Marconi's strategy of charging fairly high royalties and charging per valve had a perverse effect. It actually made British radios more expensive to build because the said manufacturers were desperate to get around the royalty. But Marconi owned all the key royalties, so this was very difficult. So what they did, they approached the valve manufacturers and said, can you design us valves which do two or three operations in the same valves? And the valve manufacturers were a very tight cartel, they fixed prices. They were quite keen on this because it gave them a chance to compete against each other. So they started bringing out triodes and pentodes and valves which could do several things together. And these valves were very complex and very expensive. They cost a lot to produce. They cost a lot to buy for the radio manufacturers. But it was still economical, because even though these things were outrageously expensive, it was still cheaper to buy a very complex valve than pay the royalties. So whereas the Americans stuck with very simple valves which you could produce cheaply and anybody could produce, the valve manufacturers in Britain were developing these complex valves which were much more expensive. You need fewer of them a set. In America, you could buy twice as many valves, put them in a set, and they'd still be a lot cheaper. Marconi didn't have a, a patent then that, that, that operated in America? No, the, there was an international patent cartel, so Marconi sold its patent rights to the Radio Corporation of America, RCA. And again, in Germany and France, the leading company got the control of the domestic market, which is another key thing. There was no real overseas competition. There was no um, export then market for Very the little export. There was a little bit to Australia and the Empire, but it was very small scale compared to the domestic market. So why didn't we buy American radios then? Because the industry colluded to prohibit them. There was a fairly substantial tariff on American imports and the Valve Manufacturers Cartel, the British Valve Manufacturers Association, BVA, made all of the wholesalers and retailers sign agreements that if they were ever caught selling an American valve, they would never be allowed to deal with any of the British radio equipment again. It was a very strong and very effective cartel. So what you were getting by the late 1920s is a situation which was ideal for the valve manufacturers, because as the valves became more complex, they were less interchangeable. So the big valve manufacturers began to develop their own monopolies for particular types of sets. And they were getting lots of money from these valves, but at the same time, 
the manufacturers were prepared to pay the cash because it would save them money on the royalties. The person who was having to pick up the bill was largely the customer because the valves broke down and needed replacement quite regularly. And they were having to pay very high prices for the valves in addition to higher prices for the sets. It doesn't sound like a, like a steady model for a, for a business you know, going forward for decades. Well, some of these patents were quite old by the 1930s. Between 1929 and 1932, the fundamental patents, the absolute key patents which you needed to have to get a radio working, began to expire. And then the valve manufacturers realised now there are no fundamental patents, we're looking at what are called detail patents to do things which are more specific. Marconi hasn't got a monopoly, so let's buy up a lot of patent rights and we can offer our own patent pools. So Philips and British Thomson Houston, who were the two big suppliers to the radio trade, suddenly developed their own patent pools and said to radio manufacturers, we'll give you very cheap patents but you must agree to sign a contract to buy our valves. So now the valve manufacturers were doing really well because they were supplying both patents and they were supplying valves. And they were tying in the big independent providers like, say, Murphy, Echo, Pi, into agreements where they got cheap patents, but the valves were still quite expensive. And as a historian, I mean, how has this come to light? I mean, this obviously known within the industry, probably not very well known in the, for the public at large and so on, but presumably all well recorded in the Marconi archive? Absolutely. There's a very nice document which was written in the late 1930s, which talks about the development of the patents and how Marconi were able to block certain patents because they could show they had something which was necessary to use for that patent and how they created a monopoly for themselves. And how eventually, with the passing of the fundamental patents, their income fell from around £180,000 a year, which was a lot of money in modern terms, to less than 20000 by the late 1930s. Marconi started offering more and more favourable terms to use its patents. But some companies just simply refused to pay. Ultra, which was quite a big radio company, said, why pay any money for patents when Echo and Pi and these other companies aren't doing? And by the late 1930s, even some quite big companies were simply refusing to pay money for patents and virtually daring Marconi to take them to court. So how far is your work going? I mean, when, what's your terminal date for the I'm present? finishing at the Second World War. Because okay. the Second World War, you have another period where wartime demand changes the industry. The big British radio companies tend to go into radar. That was one of the good things about the British industry because they'd have to develop these more complex sets, sets which were expensive but which were technically very good. They actually did make quite a big contribution to the war effort. So that's very interesting. The two world wars really made a difference to radio in their different ways. And tragically the second world war was probably the start of the end for the British electronics industry. Because for 15, 20 years after that, the government clamped down on spending on what it called luxuries with very strict regulations and higher purchase. Even after the rationing of purchases was stopped in about 1954, the government still rationed credit. So it was quite difficult to buy expensive 
durable goods, which meant that the home market was much weaker than, say, the home market in America or even in, say, Germany. In a sense, we won the war, but we took on a massive debt which wasn't finally paid off till towards the end of the century. And this debt tended to hold back the development of British consumer industries and is one of the reasons, one of the underrated reasons, why by the 1980s Britons tended to have a reasonable defence-related electronics industry, but very little in the way of civilian electronics. It was the invasion of the Japanese televisions and electrical goods in the 1970s which finally killed a lot of the firms off.